0: This is Three P Theory, the podcast for AEC professionals seeking to elevate their knowledge on green building strategies and practical design collaboration for sustainable mindsets. Bringing you change makers, innovators, and sustainable leaders who have positively impacted the industry. It's time to get inspired, motivated, and fired up to take action towards a greener planet. Here is your host, Mike Brown. Hey, Tosh. Great to have you today. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and? how you got to you know, where you are today in your role?
1: Well, hey, Mike. First of all, thanks for having me on. You know, it's, it's definitely a privilege and honor to be able to talk about you know, the energy industry and you know, what you and I get to work on and the change that we get to affect. So thanks for that. A bit about my background. I started in cleantech about 12 years ago. Before that, I was in the semiconductor industry. And, you know, we decided to start a family and, and move to Hawaii and with myself and my wife. And there really wasn't much of a high-tech sector over there. And, you know, clean tech was, uh, you know, just starting to get traction and, and be a burgeoning industry. And, and Hawaii, because of its, where it's at and, you know, the fact that it's, you know, it's, a, it's a, their island grids and there's a lot of imported fuel sources, uh, fossil fuel sources... That are there has a, a, a very strong clean tech incubator environment, incubation environment. And so, getting into clean tech over there, I was able to start with a clean tech startup that was focused on concentrated solar thermal uh, trough collectors and uh, was trying to use that technology and advance that technology for. Grid scale and CNI applications, commercial and industrial applications, and then you know I worked for the utility for a while, and and you know was part of integrating and implementing their first Hawaiian Electric's first commercial and industrial uh, demand response program called Fast DR, and you know I was I was lucky enough to help support the pilot, and you know and, and Get a significant amount of, of megawatts for the pilot uh, subscribed and participating in the program, and then you know from there I I you know worked a uh, solar EPC and you know decided to see what the other half the greener half lives like and got to work for for a solar contractor for a bit and then you know moved to moved to being a, a engineering consultant and advising large commercial commercial real estate owners on how to integrate more renewables into their portfolios. So it's, it's been quite an interesting journey and I was able to get my foot in the door with the the energy storage world by, you know, researching it and trying to understand it and got to work for some really innovative and progressive companies like Johnson Controls, who was, you know, trying to build a, a market in the energy storage business and also an LX too, as well. I was with them for a little bit, and in helping them, you know, grow their their energy storage footprint in, on the West Coast, and um, and you know, ha- held various other positions in finance and, and advising startups in, you know, the the electric vehicle space, electric vehicle software space, and most recently, I, I started uh, ChargeNet and. ChargeNet software is integrating solar batteries and DC fast chargers at uh, fast food and retail locations along major transit routes to help solve for the EV infrastructure gap that we are experiencing that we're going to experience for the for the foreseeable future.
0: Awesome! Awesome! Great! Yeah, it sounds like you've got a uh, a wide breadth of experience, you know, across multiple sectors, and it's interesting that. You have experience in in Hawaii. I'm sure that's a a very, very unique market, uh, especially since I'm sure a lot of things there are built around resiliency. I mean, I can imagine what the cost of electricity is there. Do, Do you remember on hand about what that was?
1: Yes, the cost of electricity, being a rate payer over there was very expensive. You know, anywhere from, you know, 34 cents to about 50 cents a kilowatt hour. And, you know, depending on what island you went to, there was a lot of push for integrating solar. You know, the, a lot of the, the uh, residential solar companies like Sunrun and uh, Vivint at a certain point and Sunpower have, have done really well there. And, you know, have integrated a lot of solar onto the grid. And, you know, along with that, you, you also have a lot of um, military and you know, federal land and uh, military bases that where where they've they've also been able to integrate a lot of renewables. You know, in some cases, a lot quicker than the utility. Even then, too, the utility is you know as as difficult it is to institute change rapidly has has done a fair job. You know, adding more renewables, more solar, more batteries, more wind into their their portfolio as well. So they're constantly trying to, you know, find ways to make their rates more efficient and, you know, incorporate more renewables. They have a very aggressive goal. I think they're the first state to institute, you know, 100% renewable portfolio standard goal by 2030, you know, and right as a, the <laughs> yeah, it's right around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. And they've done a pretty fair job to, to get there. And, you know, there are always challenges along the way. And so I think they've, you know, looked at various ways of trying to address those challenges and, and overcome them. And, you know, they've also, you know, allowed for a lot more new technologies to, to you know, have the test bed to succeed like ocean energy and, and centralized district cooling, uh, ocean cooling and, you know, and, and other innovative renewable technologies.
0: Nice. Nice. Yeah. It's always good to hear, you know, kind of those aggressive jurisdictions that are kind of moving the needle forward. And, you know, unlike some of other parts of the country, you know, where energy, energy is a little bit cheaper, you know, it's a little more challenging, but uh, there's definitely a lot of opportunity as well. Mm-hmm. I want to take a second to step back so that our listeners can understand uh, more about what a uh, microgrid is and kind of some of the infrastructure surrounding that and opportunity for uh, building owners and facility managers. And then we'll kind of dive into some other uh, other part of the topic as well.
1: Yeah. And that's a great question. You know, microgrids are increasingly becoming more and more important because of, you know, uh, issues that we have with, you know, natural weather events and, you know, emergency situations. And for a property owner to be able to have an on-site microgrid gives them the ability to you know generate and run their property without having to be reliant on the you know larger utility grid and so you know being able to incorporate you know a base load asset which is kind of your foundation which could be a you know natural gas generator or a fuel cell something that has a steady output that is you know essentially your your you know the the base amount of what you need to to operate that 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 property or that that asset is the, the foundation of you know being able to operate in an off-grid situation. And then when you add you know other assets to that equation like you know solar and batteries, you're able to make that uh, microgrid more cost efficient and also be able to address variable load at different times of the day. If you integrate, you know, a, a base load asset like a fuel cell, solar and batteries, um, you kind of have, you know, the th- what I like, like to call the three legs of the stool. And those three legs of the stool give you what you need to be able to, you know, ride through, you know, a- any sort of situation and, and essentially operate off grid for a large part and, you know, support your operation, whatever it may be. And what the solar does is it, you know, obviously you're sending kilowatt hours during the day. It's offsetting the base load, the batteries, you know, getting energy stored from the solar, you know, or from the base load asset, from the fuel cell or, or natural gas generator, and you know, it's addressing like any sort of spikes or variable load that that are happening throughout, you know, the, the operation or the day, and then you know you're able to kind of shift your energy. At different points of the day, using using the battery, and and also you know extend out or firm the the power from the solar. There's a lot of different applications that you can do using those assets. The one thing that's also very important is the electrical infrastructure too, as well that allows you to operate off grid and essentially island you know the the, the property from the grid. And uh, typically, you know, that is, you know, a microgrid switch and controllers that allow you to essentially close the circuit and, I guess, open the circuit so that you're no longer tied to the grid and you're now fully reliant on, you know, your your microgrid uh, infrastructure. And then when the grid returns and you're able to get more reliable power from them, um, then you're able to close the circuit and, you know, essentially use that use the energy from the grid as kind of like a, you know, secondary or tertiary power source to operate your, you know, your building or your, your operation. So, you know, it's, it's a very useful uh, technology and, you know, the technology is, is become pretty well advanced over, uh, over time. There's some really amazing analytical tools that, you know, allow you to model uh, different use cases for, microgrids and also to help design them and you know in a, a lot of ways you know it was, it was a bit of a, a black box you know before where you know in, in a little bit of a, a little bit of a voodoo science that you know how to be practiced to kind of understand like well how do you size size this how do, you know how does this work you know how much is it going to cost and so you know the different factors that go into that um and um in, in evaluating that and like a microgrid doesn't always work for all situations, you know, it works for most situations. And, you know, the important thing is that it's gotta be, you know, cost effective and financially viable, you know, to your operation. And so, you know, building owners need to take into account, you know, what the impact of, you know, not having a microgrid would be, or, you know, potentially losing operation for, you know, an hour, or four hours or eight hours. And what that impact would be, and you know, use that to as a kind of cost offset or cost basis for justifying whether a microgrid is is necessary or not.
0: That definitely makes sense, and especially for the use cases where we talk about critical facilities or uh, mission critical um, healthcare, public safety facilities that you know may need to be operational. You know, if there were you know a natural disaster or things of that nature that cut power uh, you mm-hmm. know, in the main utility. And, mm-hmm. um, like you said, one of the huge variables there is, you know, how long they want to be able to stay at, you know, a certain capacity, uh, for a certain amount of time, whether it's 50%, things of that nature. And from your experience, I mean, typically for that range on the high end, what have you seen? I'm assuming maybe what, 24 hours, 48 hours, or do they even get that large?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, that's that's a great question. I mean, uh, I guess I'll frame it this way. I mean, the traditional approach to being able to back up a critical load is, you know, you have a series of, you know, diesel generators and, you know, you have a a store of diesel fuel that you, if in in an emergency situation, you know, you're able to activate that and, you know, run those critical loads for, you know, as, for as long as you have, you know, diesel fuel to cover it. And that could be, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours. It really depends on, you know, what your access to the fuel sources. And, you know, nowadays, most, not all, but most, you know, emergency situations last roughly between, you know, four and eight hours at the outset and and you know with the with the majority of them being like you know about an hour you know sometimes less than an hour but I'd say to mean about an hour and so you know being able to have renewable sources to cover that it makes a lot more sense than having to you know run a diesel generator and you know have the type of environmental impact and contribution to climate change that those generators create and so you know the epa has got a lot more strict around diesel generators you know when and how you can run them you know and, and how, how they're maintained and what type of exhaust that they can have what type of you know byproducts they can they can release into the environment so you know that having a a renewable based microgrid is you know a really good way to not just reduce your energy costs but you know also be able to support you know a, a, a critical um, a critical load in an emergency situation and depending on you know what the mix of assets are you know you, you can essentially get the same type of coverage that you would be able to get from a diesel generator and you could even, you know, as a, you know, tertiary source, again, keep those generators online, but not use them, you know, first. I mean, use your solar, use your batteries and, and use your fuel cell first. And, and then, you know, if, if it does extend out further, then you can rely on that, that diesel generator to help, you know, c- cover the rest of the way until the, you know, the grid returns power. So I think a lot of, Different thought has gone into the the value of, of microgrids and and how to use that and how you know traditional generators are, have been used for that and you know and also how they are being deprioritized in a very um, useful way.
0: I think especially for those that are wanting to you know have you know no no fossil fuels uh, on site and things of that nature even from a backup. Generator standpoint, you know that could be an option or opportunity to help them get there. You know, and still, you know, meeting regulations for you know building code and, and things of that nature. I'm not sure if you've come across any situations where you know maybe for an existing building versus a new building where that becomes more of a challenge. But you know, I think even beyond that, as we start to talk about some of those larger scale pro- projects, they can even kind of offload, especially if they're storing large battery banks. Uh, I think there've been a couple of buildings in New York, I believe, that have these battery banks in their basement vaults. Uh, And they're Mm -hmm. able to to offload some of that and even share some of that amongst other buildings at times. Mm -hmm. Have you seen a lot Mm -hmm. of those strategies being deployed?
1: Yeah, in fact, you know, those strategies are becoming a lot more popular and, and viable. So one of the things that's really cool about the New York market is, you know, that they've found really innovative ways to utilize batteries. And I'd say in terms of the programmatic approach that New York has towards participating batteries in ancillary services and in, you know, other grid-facing opportunities is, has been really unique and different. And You know, one thing that New York City has is pretty aged infrastructure. You know, their transmission distribution equipment is pretty expensive to upgrade. And it's pretty difficult to upgrade because of the congestion a lot of times where it's located. And so what batteries are able to do is provide a relief for that, you know, and and a deferral opportunity for those, you know, those aged transformers and, and distribution equipment that would otherwise cost, you know, significantly more to to have to replace. And so by, you know, these buildings adding batteries into their portfolios, what's happening is they're being able to mitigate, you know, demand issues. They're able to provide, you know, a renewable source for for backup power and, you know, be able to offset a critical load. In a lot of cases, they're able to uh, integrate them to participate, not just participate in like you know ancillary services like demand response, but also aggregate those batteries as a virtual power plant. So you know if at a certain point in time, you know the utility uh, starts to uh, experience you know a, a peak situation, they can activate those batteries in unison and essentially have it participate at like a peaking generator and, you know, offset, you know, a, a really expensive peak. And, you know, it's also shaped how they've been able to design their rate tariffs. And what's unique about, you know, New York City is they have a, you know, a real-time demand structure. So it's, you know, typically your your real-time markets, at least in California, are focused on the, the energy component of the rate. And, in New York, it's focused on the demand part of the rate. So what you're able to do is you know, use the battery to, to do some really interesting, you know, arbitrage um, functions and you know offset you know offset a, a pretty good portion of your the demand cost, you know, for building owners. So you know, put, putting in a battery is a really great idea. There have been some really uh, neat microgrids um, that have been integrated there. You know, one in particular is in a, a low-income housing development in Brooklyn. They added solar, they added fuel cells and, and batteries, and you know, during uh, Hurricane Sandy, you know, was able to ride through that that event and you know, be able to provide power to critical loads in the buildings so that you know, residents could you know be able to get to their 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 homes and, and you know, and be safe, be safe from you know everything that was happening. So it's pretty neat to see that, you know, starting to get incorporated more and more into, into buildings.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned that, because I think about the kind of arbitrage that you're talking about with the utilities being able to essentially have all these assets. And I'm sure with this particular, you know, process as well, you know, you're way, way more involved with the utility than you would typically be on a a design project, uh, which is a good thing to kind of create that partnership and understanding when it comes to ongoing maintenance and things of that nature with these types of projects, is that a shared cost between the utility and the, the building owner, or is that solely upon the building owner to maintain those systems and things of that nature?
1: It depends on who owns those assets. And in, in a lot of scenarios, you know, it may not make sense for the building owner to own them just because it's, it's capital-intensive infrastructure. And, you know, there's a long-term maintenance cost that, that goes along with it. Um, but there are a lot of energy infrastructure funds that, you know, understand the investment and, you know, are uh, able to take the risk and understand the risks of being able to operate and own um, these assets for the long term. What ends up happening is, is a pretty neat win-win for the building owner is, you know, third-party infrastructure comes in and says, hey, we want to install this equipment in your building. We're going to give you a share of the savings. And, you know, we're going to sell you some energy at a reduced cost, cheaper than what you can buy from the utility. And, you know, if at any point in time, you know, you need the power for, you know, an emergency situation, we'll give you energy for your critical load to help support you being able to get through that, you know, that, that event. And what's great is, is that the third party owner is able to you know, maintain the asset that the building owner doesn't have to worry about, you know, the complexities of how to operate a microgrid or, you know, that how to, you know, update the software to be able to maintain different uh, changes in regulatory issues. It's all done for them. And, you know, they get the benefit without having to, to pay the cost. Now, if there are building owners that are, you know, more savvy and you know want to uh, understand the investment potential, uh, or you know, take on the investment potential and risk of integrating these and, and operating them, that works too as well, pretty well. And there's a lot of um, benefit that that comes along with that, along with tax benefit and you know cash incentives and depreciation and and as well as getting, you know, the full value of the, of the savings. And what's really great is, you know, that there are financing vehicles that that don't have to take up uh, the building owner's borrowing capacity to be able to do that. There's been a lot of work around property assessed clean energy on lending mm-hmm. and commercial, both commercial and on the residential side. Um, those programs have expanded to, you know, I think now about twenty-four states and there, there are a lot more that are starting to that are starting to accept that legislation. And basically the way it works is this a building owner can say, hey, I want to put in, you know, energy efficiency and you know renewable energy into my property and you know, I own the building and the property values is, is pretty good. You know, I'm gonna use a property sus clean energy loan to finance it. And basically what they do is they go to, you know, a property assessed clean energy lender or a PACE lender and, you know, they say, Hey, my property's assessed value is this. They typically will allow you to borrow up to a certain amount of your property's assessed value. And, you know, you, you hire a contractor that can procure the equipment and install it. And you know, you essentially pay back the loan of the the property assessed clean energy loan on your property tax bill and so you know you're able to finance all these upgrades and get all the benefit from them without having to you know use uh, borrowing capacity or carry you know debt or leverage your credit worthiness to be able to reap the benefits of being energy efficient and integrating renewable and being a good steward of the environment so you know there's a lot of different options for property owners to you know, be, uh, be green and increase their property value and, and you know, reduce their, their energy risk. And there's a lot more popularity and traction that's, that's happening around that too as well.
0: Yeah, that is really great to hear. And, you know, a lot of the projects you know, that I work on, we try to kind of investigate some of these opportunities, obviously at a much, much smaller scale uh, where it makes sense and, you know, one of the resources that I've shared with listeners before, which I'll add on to this as well, and I'm sure you're familiar with is a uh, reopt, which is kind mm-hmm. of a simplified approach to really getting a, a big picture around viability, uh, depending on what that criteria is for the owner. And, you know, how many predicted outages could happen per year and so on and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it really serves as a kind of a, a benchmark for a lot of projects. Mm mm-hmm. And I may have mentioned to you before one of the ones we were working on before that had you know a lot of extra landmass, a lot of parking area, and we're investigating whether or not they should kind of have a small microgrid in junction with the solar carports, uh, solar on the mm-hmm. road, and some other opportunities. So uh, I think it's a good a good start for engineers, architects, uh, performance modelers, even uh, to take a a little short dip into to that world. I uh, start having those conversations with owners when they talk about resiliency, especially if they have plans to expand that campus or expand their their scope in that area.
1: Yeah, the two things that I always like to keep in mind, or I tell building owners to keep in mind when you know thinking about resiliency is, you know first, how much are you paying for your energy? because the energy that that the microgrid is is gonna have to create has to be, you know, significantly cheaper to be financially viable for that and you know also think about you know what the value of that that you know that loss of energy is to you either you know from an operational perspective if you're manufacturing something if the site were to go down and you you know lost manufacturing for an hour how much product would you lose would you have to scrap that product and start over again you Mm -hmm. know and then the, the other thing to use is, you know, how much do you really like your utility? Do you like them enough to, you know, put in millions and millions or hundreds of thousand dollars of equipment or millions of dollars worth of equipment to not have to pay your bill to them? Is that something that, that you're willing to do? And, and in some cases, it's yes. I found that, you know, some of the, some of the time the answer has been pretty surprisingly and resoundingly yes. I'd rather pay more <laughs> than pay the utility, you know, less than than um, what I'm having to pay myself or what it's costing me, and you know, and, and, and that's that's definitely a you know a business decision or a personal decision that that has to be made. But there's a lot lot of thought that has to go into that before you know that, that you pr- you pursue that and and then going into sort of the development side of this or the now analytic piece of this. And, and this is where I'm going to plug plug Homer, uh, which is now owned by UL a little bit, just because, you know, we we use their tools and we're, we're very happy with the tools that they've created. And, you know, there's some really amazing analytical tools out there to be able to assess that and to look at, you know, whether it makes sense to put in a microgrid or, or if maybe it just makes sense to put in solar in, in a battery or, you know, put in a fuel cell or, uh, some other renewable asset but you know they do a really good job of you know being able to get you to a decision and really look at the the, the viability of if a microgrid is going to work and you know they, they have two products they have Homer grid and then they have Homer Pro you know in most cases people use uh, homer Homer grid and you know you can essentially you know build out all the components that you need for microgrid you know, analyze it and put together some very good reports and materials and baseline analysis and and, uh, comparative analysis that you can present to a building owner to, to either get them to buy into doing it or decide to move in a different direction. Definitely. Okay.
0: Thank you for listening to 3P Theory with Mike Brown. If you like our show and want to know more, check out 3Ptheory.com or please leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. Join us next time for more insightful knowledge on high-performance building design.